Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled RCC Treatment Strategies in a Favorable Risk Patient, is accredited by Penn State College of Medicine and sponsored by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning. This activity is supported by independent medical education grants from Exelixis Incorporated and Merck & Company Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hi, I'd like to welcome our uh, participants and our attendees to this CME activity. Uh, my name is Jay Raman. I'm professor of urology at the Penn State College of Medicine in Hershey. Um, hi, my name is uh, Dr. August Aiken. I'm an attending radiologist at uh, Memorial Sloan Kevin Cancer Center, New York. I'm Elizabeth Klimak. I'm a medical oncologist in the division of GU Medical Oncology at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. My name is Robert Mozart, and I'm a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. This CME activity is supported by educational grants from Merck and Exelixis. And uh, to just give you a virtual tumor board activity overview, what we're going to be talking about, this is going to be a presentation and a discussion of a uh, patient with clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Uh, we'll talk about treatment strategies. Uh, some of the evidence that's underlying the selection or the recommendations for potential treatment options, certainly clinical considerations, including patient comorbidities and adverse event profiles of different treatments, and, and most importantly, perhaps the role of the patient in a shared decision-making process as these treatment selections are made. I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Plemak to take us through this case. Sure. So this case is a 62-year-old woman who initially presented in 2016 with the left clear cell renal cell carcinoma. At the time, she also had a metastasis to the, it, it's the lateral left adrenal glands. So this, this is a, a situation that uh, we see a lot in, in uh, the kidney cancer world after urologic surgery. Certainly the, these patients who pathologically have non-metastatic disease, but have high risk features, T3, T4, perhaps N1 disease. And ultimately the question is, what is the role, especially as our armamentarium has grown for the use of adjuvant therapies for high risk non-metastatic kidney cancer? And, and I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Mozer and Dr. Plemak because we certainly refer our patients to medical oncology for consideration and discussion of trials and options. Perhaps their thoughts for this patient at this juncture. Well, I can, I'll speak first to tyrosine kinase inhibitors and then uh, perhaps Dr. Plemak can cover the IO programs. But uh, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors were, you know, looked at maybe 10, 12 years ago as an adjuvant therapy uh, in large phase three trials compared to placebo. There was one trial, the uh, S-TRAC trial, that showed a modest benefit for sinitinib and prolonging disease-free survival. But the others, particularly the ASSURE trial, which was a larger trial done in uh, cooperative groups in the United States, as well as studies with serafinib and exitinib failed to and pizopinib failed to show a benefit. So although technically sinitinib is, uh, has received regulatory approval in the United States, um, really there's a body of evidence that uh, uh, showing that TKIs really don't benefit patients. And with the toxicity, uh, you know, I think that we were, we we're looking for new avenues. And, uh, 
generally, uh, you know, I, I don't recommend uh, sunitinib as an adjuvant therapy for our patients. Um, I think that the, you know, the, uh, the, um, the real excitement and enthusiasm now is with uh, IO therapies. And uh, maybe Dr. Plimick can contact, can comment on that. Sure. So we've been excited about adjuvant immunotherapy strategies in renal cell for a long time. We've shown that in melanoma, this can be a successful strategy. And we just recently saw at ASCO data on pembrolizumab after a section of high-risk renal cell carcinoma that showed a disease-free survival benefit. Um, currently, the data on overall survival is immature, meaning not enough people have died, which is a good thing on the study to say whether we're helping people live longer or not. Um, very exciting. I think a lot of us think that immunotherapy has much more potential to be of benefit in the adjuvant setting. Um, but personally, until we have immuno, I'm sorry, overall survival data with this strategy, I would hold off. Rationale being that we want to cure people if we're going to expose a broad group of patients, including those who are destined to never recur to the toxicities we discussed in the prior case of immunotherapy. And second of all, the combination strategies for metastatic disease are so effective, it's possible that that may shrink the difference between the curves when we look at OS. So I'll wait eagerly to see those data. Let's continue with the case. Um, so this patient, of course, underwent surgery as we discussed. Um, let's let, At the time in 2016, there was no FDA-approved adjuvant therapy, so this patient would have gone on to just regular surveillance. And in 2019, she was found to have hepatic nodules with biopsy consistent with clear cell renal cell carcinoma. After discussion with her treating physician, she elected to go on surveillance, meaning no treatment but serial imaging to follow the low volume metastasis. And this was based on shared decision-making and patient preference. In 2021, so now two years later, there was continued growth, new metastases, increased total tumor burden. Um, but when we calculate her IMDC score, she is favorable risk. So I'll pass to Dr. Aiken to take us through the images. Um, here uh, we see the uh, representative images from the most recent uh, CT scan. The first image uh, shows uh, uh, multiple bilateral uh, pulmonary and pleural base metastases in the lower lung sections. In addition, uh, there's moderate-sized right pleural diffusion compressing the right lung. Uh, we see uh, a lymph node in the left periaortic region. Although this lymph node is about a centimeter in size, if you notice, it's uh, enhancing very avidly uh, in a patient with a clear cell RCC. This is, again, very suspicious for metastasis. And I'd like to pass it over to Dr. Rahman for surgical options in a patient like this. Sure. So I think they're limited. Um, and, and, and I would say... When you look at recurrent kidney cancer, uh, where does surgery or, or perhaps SBRT uh, really factor in? I, I think it's really when you have a solitary site of metastasis where perhaps metastatectomy allows you to treat that lesion and, and, and perhaps delay or obviate the need of systemic therapy. Uh, the reality is when you have a patient such as this who has multiple metastases in the lungs, evidence of lymphadenopathy uh, in the periodic distribution, this again uh, highlights systemic disease, and systemic disease really needs systemic treatment. And, and so I pass it back to Dr. Plimak and Dr. Mocha really to take us more through the algorithm of how they approach this with systemic therapy considerations. 
So this is a different scenario, this favorable risk patient than an intermediate and poor risk patient. And this, in this particular patient case, she was on observation for a period of time before enough lesions grew to really introduce um, a recommendation for systemic therapy. Now, the data are clear that combination immunotherapy, VEGF or IO uh, combinations yield benefit in this scenario in terms of progression-free survival and response rate over single agent VEGF TKI. But interestingly, consistently across the VEGF IO trials, there's no yet overall survival benefit in the favorable risk group um, with these therapies over a single agent VEGF therapy. So in a patient who, again, doesn't need that, that benefit of response rate, maybe less is more, maybe has concerns about immunotherapy or can't come to the center for infusions. In that group of patients, one could, with shared decision-making, discuss starting with a VEGF TKI first, um, again, for convenience and limiting side effects, given that you're not sacrificing anything in terms of overall survival. Um, but it's a discussion with each patient. Dr. Mozer. Yeah, so I agree. Um, you know, the, the surveillance approach for favorable risk was really established before there were effective drugs based on a, a really a variable natural history for kidney cancer, where some patients would have very aggressive course and other patients would have slowly progressive disease or even spontaneous regression. So I think that many of our patients who are asymptomatic with small volume disease are followed by surveillance until it's clear that the patient's progressing or requires therapy. The, the uh, criteria for that really have not been objectified. It's really more of subjective. And again, it's a decision between the on treating oncologist and the uh, patient. Uh, for the favorable risk uh, patients, I mean, my, my preference uh, has been to go with the TKI IO for the majority of patients. Uh, Albeit there are, as, as, as Dr. Plimick mentioned, there's, there's options of a TKI uh, monotherapy or even uh, ipinevo in this population of patients. But I favor the TKI IO based on the high response rate and the overall activity of the combination and the trial, you know, recognizing that the trials weren't powered for a survival benefit in the um, in this, in this relatively small subset of patients. Uh, but also, uh, uh, this gives me the opportunity to DC either the TKI and continue the IO therapy if the patient's not tolerating that, or vice versa. If there's a poor tolerance of the IO therapy, then I DC it and continue the TKI. I also favor this approach because, uh, you know, because the the progression-free or the disease-free survival is longer with this combinations. And I think, you know, patients are traumatized by progression while on one or the other therapy. So uh, I think, uh, you know, that, that's been my approach for most patients, but recognizing that frail patients or patients who do not want IL immune uh, therapy given IV, uh, you know, could be treated with a, with a TKI alone. So I'd agree with that. I think the only thing I would add is that if we don't want patients to progress, we have really no business using ipi and nevo in favorable risk patients. The response rate is much better with even single agent um, sunitinib, and we know we can improve even further upon that with the combinations of VEGFIO. Um, the progression-free survival curves with very long follow-up still shows superiority of sunitinib over ipi and nevo in favorable risk. 
And again, um, there's no overall survival benefit uh, with any of these, um, but Ibunivo falls into that category also. So I agree. I think if you're really looking for the most benefit short-term and long-term, the combinations make sense. Um, and it's really an individual patient where um, single agent VEGFTKI would be used. I think um, the data comparing the different trials, it's important to note that in the intent to treat population, all of the trials showed superiority over the single agent VEGFTKI. The subset analysis for favorable risk, while clearly a subset analysis that's post hoc in most cases, does help us with individual patient decision-making. And I think um, what Dr. Mozart described and hopefully we covered with this patient is that especially in favorable risk, these are some of the longest shared decision-making conversations um, because of all the various aspects. And also because usually our hand is not, is not sort of forced with a threat of symptomatic progression. These are patients who've lived with disease for a long time with a good quality of life in this patient's case observation. And so decision-making happens sort of slower over a period of time um, with, with more options. So I'll go back, turn it to Dr. Raman for insights. I mean, I think the, the two sort of take-homes I, I would have from this are uh, certainly in the upfront setting post-surgery, I think it's really important for these patients with high-risk non-metastatic disease to uh, see a medical oncologist and to discuss the merits of therapy, particularly with some of the data coming out with IO therapy. And then I'm sure Dr. Aiken would agree, but, but I think the other really important component is realizing that a lot of patients with high-risk non-metastatic disease will unfortunately recur. And, and that's been proven out just with data, with risk calculators, and certainly uh, evidence-based imaging and staying on imaging algorithms is critical to identify recurrences at a early time point and clearly before they become symptomatic where I think the disease outcomes are inferior. Uh, Dr. Aiken, your thoughts? Um, I definitely agree with what you said. One point I'd like to add, um, if you notice uh, this patient uh, stayed on imaging surveillance for a very long time, and as radiologists, we are often asked to compare the recent imaging with the most recent, uh, most recent prior imaging study, but in patients like that with multiple uh, lesions that are slowly growing, it's very critical to look at the baseline scan as a comparison and go back and compare every single lesion because progression can occur in different lesions at different rates. Absolutely. Any final thoughts, uh, Dr. Mozart, Dr. Plemak? I guess I, I agree with that imaging um, recommendation. I think we can get tricked when scan after scan says stable, but when you look back over years, there's really progression. Um, and this makes the conversation sort of, again, in the assessment of each favorable risk patient observation uh, more complex, but it's a good problem to have. Again, the longer we keep patients on observation, sometimes the better treatments we have for them when they do need to start um, or access to clinical trials. So there's that added benefit of observation as well. Yeah, I mean, I would agree that imaging is key for following these patients over time. It's also, it's also very important to have radiologists who's who's familiar with the disease uh, to uh, to, to uh, follow the images and and give uh, insight into the rates of progression. Well, I really want to thank again all of our panel members for their uh, their thoughts and their insight. Uh, certainly to our attendees and our learners for joining us. 
And I would remind all uh, to please complete the post-test as well as the evaluation uh, to receive your CME credit for this activity. Thank you. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is accredited by Penn State College of Medicine and sponsored by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning. This activity is supported by independent medical education grants from Exelixis Incorporated and Merck & Company Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.